0: Well until you have a name for something, you can't talk about it in any structured way.
1: There are rules of botanical nomenclature which go on for, uh, for hundreds of pages.
0: I mean, the plants are typically named after one of their one of the characteristics of what they look like. And
2: sometimes they're named in honor of the person who finds them, like the Diasporas Hong Y-A, named for a Malagasy grad student who recently worked with the Missouri Botanical Garden. What's in a name anyway? Mine is Sara Fetsky, and we'll dig into some interesting botany in just a moment on St. Louis on the Air. And before we move on, I want to remind you that the biggest source of St. Louis Public Radio's funding comes from listeners like you. Because you value what you hear on St. Louis on the Air, donate today. Go to stlpr.org donate. That's stlpr.org donate. You may hear a lot about species going extinct, and yes, that is happening, but even as some plants and animals die out, others are only now being discovered, and the Missouri Botanical Garden plays a critical role in identifying them and describing them. And joining us today to talk about that work is Peter Wise Jackson. He's the president of the Missouri Botanical Garden. Peter, welcome.
1: Thank you very much. And I'll we're also
2: we're also joined today by Jim Miller. He's the Garden's Senior Vice President of Science. Jim, welcome.
0: Thank you, Sarah. I'm delighted to be here.
2: So, Jim, let's start with you. What does it mean to describe a species?
0: Well, it means that somebody has made a collection. In almost all instances, it means they've preserved a, a dried specimen that can be permanently consulted. It's necessary to provide that with a name. Um, Every species has a two-part Latin name. And then the formal act of describing it requires that you describe what it looks like, its general appearance according to a botanical protocol, and those are published in journals. Uh, and uh, and and that's the process of of describing and naming things,
2: so Jim, give me just a little example here. Like, how in depth would a description go if if you've got one of these species, you've named it, you know, you're getting this in a journal. Are we talking pages? Are We talking sentences?
0: Oh, we're a typical a typical description would be about a page long, and it would be in what to your average person would be relatively indecipherable botanical <laughs> terms. This
2: this is written for people within these fields. Yes. So, Peter, it feels like it might be complicated to be certain that a species hasn't previously been described. When you found something or you think you found something, how do you ensure that it's new versus just new to you?
1: Well, most of the the new species that are uh, discovered and described are done so by experts who know the field, who know the families and the groups of plants uh, that they're looking at really very uh, get very well, and they can uh, ensure that it's it's not one that has been well described before. But mistakes are made. And so actually, there are a lot more names of plants out there than there are individual species, because plants have been described on more than one occasion. And uh, then we have to sort out which is the correct name, which was the first name for that species.
2: And and what does that process look like if a a mistake is made and, and something gets described twice? How do you decide or who gets to decide which one sticks?
1: the, the it 's usually by consensus that the that the uh, it 's the one that people realize is the correct one, which was the first publication of a of a new name uh, if it was done correctly then that 's the one that gets used uh, and there are but there are rules of botanical nomenclature which go on for uh for hundreds of pages. So if one has followed the rules, then there's usually a correct answer as to which is the name one should use.
2: Jim, it sounds like this is a bit less fraught than, say, the way we choose a president. You're not having teams of lawyers coming in and contesting things. People, scientists can get on the same page.
1: Uh, Yes, but there are sometimes people will make an appeal uh, to the International uh, Nomenclature Committee to preserve a name uh, for one reason or another. So it can get complicated
2: Okay, so there's some complicated issues involved in this. I understand the botanical garden and the Missouri Botanical Garden is very involved with this effort. Uh, Peter, when did that begin?
1: Well, the the garden has been uh, established for um, over 160 years, and really the discovery and uh, knowledge about plants has been a part of its mission ever since it was created. We are fortunate to have uh, one of the world's largest collection of preserved plant specimens, which is essentially a le- library of the world's plant life We've about 7.5 million specimens. And these are the, uh, the physical objects to which names are attached. And so we've been doing this since the very earliest days. And we continue to do it year on, year out, discovering and describing uh, the and naming uh, new plants as they, they appear. Because there are about 2,000 new plant species discovered somewhere in the world uh, each year. Hmm. And the garden describes about 200 of them, about 10% each year.
2: So you guys are doing 10% of, of the total volume of this work. That seems like maybe you're punching above your weight. Is that accurate?
1: I think the the garden has played a, a hugely important role in discovering and describing the world's flora, uh, and that extends not just new species, but um, but preparing, uh, leading the preparation of some major floras uh, books and descriptive works about uh, the flora of China, flora of North America. Uh, central America, so on. Um, many parts of the world have had the Missouri Botanical Garden central to to the knowledge, uh, gaining a knowledge on the flora of those regions.
2: Hmm. Well, Jim, let's talk about some of these new discoveries. Um, and by new, I mean within the last year, you guys did about two hundred of them. Um, and I understand that includes ten new species of ebony. Um, what's particularly interesting about these ebony discoveries?
0: Well, people who live in Missouri know the genus Diospyros, which are the ebonies and persimmons, as our local persimmon. Um, that is a species of Diospyros, but it's a big genus with, and a genus is a group of related species like oaks or maples. Uh, but people know uh, Diospyros species um, as often as ebony, the, the black wood that provides the black keys on pianos and the wood for clarinets and other musical instruments. And like a lot of big genera with hundreds of species, they're often very complicated. And one of the epicenters for diversity of uh, ebonies is Madagascar. And we have a team of people, including Pete Lowry and George Schatz, who've been working on them. And they're just covering that probably close to half of them, more than a hundred of them, are actually new to science and still have not been named. And they're picking away and uh, describing uh, a, a group of them every year. Uh, and we'll hopefully finish that in the next two or three years. But ebony's, if they're big enough to provide wood, because some of them are shrubs, not all of them are big trees, but those that are able to provide hard wood are very useful economically.
2: Hmm. So I imagine with them being useful economically, they also end up in the sites of, of people who would want to cut them down and, and just, uh, you know, no longer be growing. Is that a big issue for these ebony's?
0: Absolutely, they are uh, they are heavily poached out of out of national parks and other protected areas uh, because a, a, an ebony tree uh, with black heartwood is a valuable commodity, um, and and there is a lot of pressure from illegal lumbering.
2: So, does naming them and and the act of describing them um, that the garden is so involved in, can that help at all um, when you've got that kind of economic pressure?
0: Well, until you have a name for something, you can't talk about it in any very in any structured way. Mm-hmm. So we can't think about whether these things are teetering on the brink of extinction or not until we know they exist. We have a name for them, and we begin to accumulate information on their abundance in nature uh, and um, how they're growing, and the other things that we need to know to decide whether they are okay or whether they need a lot of attention to ensure that they survive into the future.
2: So this classification, uh, Peter, this sounds like this is really important even beyond the prestige um, that it brings to this garden.
1: Oh, it's, it's fundamental to understand the, the basis of the diversity of the ebony's if we are to be successful in protecting them. Because, um, uh, as Jim said, you can't really track individual species unless you know what they are and where they occur. And then you can put in place regulations uh, to, to stop their illegal harvesting and export to other countries.
2: So, Jim, I understand one side note here is that one of these newly identified ebonies, this was named for Cynthia Wah, and she was part of the garden's team. Um, who is she, and how did she end up getting this honor?
0: Cynthia Hongwa was a uh, graduate student. I was actually on her graduate committee. Um, she's from Madagascar, and she came here and did her graduate research at the Missouri Botanical Garden, but she actually got her degrees through the University of Missouri-St. Louis, with whom we have a very strong uh, relationship co-mentoring graduate students and getting them degrees. Cynthia did not go back to Madagascar. She took a job as the curator of the Herbarium, which is the plant collection at Delaware State University, and that's where she is now. But she's played a tremendous role in helping us understand the flora of Madagascar, and this new uh, ebony that's named in her honor recognizes her contributions.
2: How unusual is it for somebody, especially a, a grad student working on something, to get a plant named after them?
0: Um, It it, it happens. It's not uh, exceptionally common, but it's not exceptionally rare either. Hmm. I mean, the plants are typically named after one of their one of the characteristics of what they look like, like they have shiny leaves or, or teeth on their leaves. They're named after places from which they come, like there are plenty of species that are named something Madagascariensis, hmm. uh, or, or they're named after somebody who collected them or somebody who was an authority on the flora from which they came.
2: So what, can you tell us, what is the name of Cynthia's ebony?
0: It is Diospyros hungwaeae.
2: Okay, so her last name is is right there in the proper name. Is
0: Hongwa. Yes.
2: That is super cool. Well, so this work, this work is just so fascinating and and Peter, you mentioned that you guys did about 200 plants in 2020. Um I imagine the pandemic has thrown just a bunch of things in chaos for you the same way it has for the whole world. Is that about typical the output you had in in this past year?
1: Yes, about 200 is is uh, is a, on average number of species that are being described by our scientists at at the garden. But of course, the pandemic has really put paid to, in 2020, a lot of the field work, which might result in new discoveries. But of course, a lot of the species that are being described and named are actually in the collections already, hmm. perhaps unrecognized, or it may take uh, many years, sometimes uh, um, sometimes just quicker than that, but to get, to get the work done uh, to, to describe a new species based on specimens in the herbarium. And really the pandemic has given an opportunity for some of our scientists to catch up a little bit on their publications and the desk research uh, that might have they might have been spending more time on field work if that had happened so it's swings and roundabouts uh, with the last year
2: We're talking today about the process of identifying and describing new plant life. Um, Our guests today are Peter Wise Jackson, the president of the Missouri Botanical Garden, as well as Jim Miller, who's the garden's senior vice president of science. And Jim, you were telling us a bit about the ebony's. I understand you've also uh, made some real inroads in the mustard family, that one of the researchers at the garden discovered 10 new species uh, within that family. How did a discovery like that come about?
0: Well, um, Isan al Shabazz, who is an authority on the mustard family, which is a big group of plants, thousands of species, um, knows the family very well, and he's been very productive. Every year, when we look at the species that we publish, Isan is one of our scientists who's near the top of the list, uh, describing 10 or 20 new species almost every year, like clockwork.
2: Hmm. And so he had another productive year. It sounds like you just expect that from him at this point.
0: Well, he just retired, so mm. we expect him to slow down at some point in the future, but he still has a lot of momentum.
2: Okay. So that's exciting. I mean, it just—it seems like this work, is there ever a point where you could find yourself running out of species? You've done all the work that can be done. Is, has that ever happened in somebody's area of expertise, Jim?
0: No, I don't think so. Um... In fact, we are racing against time to describe things before their habitats are destroyed or degraded. Yeah. Um, we know about 300,000 species of plants, but they're probably in excess of another 100,000 that still remain to be discovered and described. And the importance of that is that most of the green that you see when you travel, the uh, the, the widespread abundant plants, have mostly already been named. So the things that we're discovering to, describing right now tend to be very rare very geographically restricted and often threatened and and with impending extinction And so it's critical that we provide names and begin to accumulate information and understand the situation of these plants if we're going to do anything to ensure their future survival.
2: So as Jim describes that there, Peter, you mentioned that um, the garden has been doing this work since its inception. It seems like the harder work is happening now. The the guys 160 years ago were able to claim the obvious things in their own backyard.
1: That's Certainly true, but it's this is uh, driven now. The urgency is driven by the conservation needs so much that we really don't want species to disappear into extinction without even having been described by science. Because if we don't know what they are, we won't be able to save them.
2: Hmm. Do you find yourself worrying about plants that have already been lost
1: forever? Yes, but I think there are uh, some of them turn up. Uh, And one finds one or two specimens left clinging onto a cliff somewhere in some obscure part of the world. We even find new species in the Midwest as well, ones that have been overlooked. Um, over the years. But we do know that this is a, a really crucial time for uh, getting plants that are a, a minute to midnight in terms of um, their survival, uh, potential survival, and conserving those. And that's that's a major role of the garden as well, to so, help in the conser- conservation of these species.
2: So looking ahead to 2021, is anything in particular on your radar? Or is this just a case of continuing to do the work, continuing to dig into what's been collected?
1: Uh, th- that work continues uh, without interruption. Uh, there obviously, the, we want to make sure that we bring many more of these endangered species into our science programs to understand them, uh, but also to, to continue to publish new species and to get many more species into cultivation or into our seed bank so that they will survive for the future.
2: Well, Peter Wise Jackson, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and, and talking about this work.
1: Thank
0: you
2: very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, and thank you, Jim. Uh, That's Jim Miller, uh, the Senior Vice President of Science for the Botanical Garden. And we were also talking to Peter Wise Jackson, the President of the Missouri Botanical Garden. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you.